Anchi's list or what, what is what is it where you can buy stuff? Yeah. And whatever it is. And like, you know, so oh, it says it's working, okay. We're so I, uh, I found okay. get I think started like here. 300 bucks. Like, we gotta get started. We are getting started right now. Resh, head of man, first, top, beginning. Look upon my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decrees. Your passion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. I see how I love See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. How long was that on while I was just talking? Uh, I, I don't know. We've been having a problem over there. So anyway, um, it, we're a little late getting started. I apologize about that, and I have no idea when the system came on, but the red light finally came on. So... We should be good to go. Um, let's see here, and if not, it's recording, so we can put it up later on the internet, and I'll find out. <coughs> what uh, let's see here. Uh, always something happens. Let's see. Uh, we got. Um, wow. Oh, you know what? Um, uh, what's his name? Come on, Charlie. Um, had a baby today. He's over in the UK. Guy had a baby today. Um, well, his wife, Rebecca, okay, and uh, what's his first name? Why can't I remember it right now? Was it? Was no. A anyway, I uh, sorry about that. I just I, we had problems with the system, and so now my my brain is off, and uh, so uh, I'll I'll remember it in the middle of the Bible study. Anyway, you've got a picture of the cutest baby. Oh my goodness. Um, uh, okay, let's see here. Sorry about that. I just you got these system problems, and Sergio, he's been here up until two minutes ago, and then he's gone. And so I haven't been able to find out what was going on, and hopefully things are working. Okay, uh, we'll go ahead and just get started. We'll read this day in Christian history. And what is today? Anybody? Today is the 28th. Oh, so Ethan's birthday was yesterday. Happy birthday yesterday, Ethan. Okay, um, April 28th. What will Jerusalem be like in the future? Ezekiel was a priest and prophet who had been taken into captivity in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon in 597 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar. In Babylon, Ezekiel had seen a vision in which the glory of God departed from the temple in Jerusalem before it was destroyed. <clears throat> then in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and took most of the remaining residents captive to Babylon. Ezekiel encouraged his fellow exiles with six messages proclaiming hope of their restoration to Israel. Some of these prophecies looked beyond their return from Babylon to their return from exile throughout the world before the final consummation of history. For example, God says through Ezekiel, I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols and I will give you a new heart with new and right desires and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out of your I will take out of your stony heart of sin and give you a new obedient heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will obey my laws and do whatever I command. The prophet Zechariah gives more details of this future time 
when God will put his spirit in the Jewish people. The Lord says through him, I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. The book of Revelation quotes the verse from Zechariah and applies it to Jesus' second coming. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the earth will weep because of him. In other words, when Jesus returns, the Jews living on the earth at that time will literally look on Jesus, whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. This is when God gives them his Holy Spirit and they are converted, receiving a new obedient heart, which is what is prophesied in Ezekiel 36, 26. The apostle Paul writes, so all Israel will be saved. Do you remember what the prophets said about this? A deliverer will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel from all ungodliness. And then I will keep my covenant with them and take away their sins. Since King Solomon's time, when the Jewish people were under God's blessing, they had a temple in Jerusalem in which to worship. This will again be true in the millennial age following the second coming of Christ. Then, on April 28, 573 BC, God took Ezekiel from Babylon back to Jerusalem by means of a vision in which he showed him the final glorious temple that is to come. More important, just as Ezekiel had a vision of God's glory leaving the temple of his day, now he sees the glory of the Lord returning to the future temple. Suddenly the glory of the God of Israel appeared from the east, and the glory of the Lord came into the temple through the east gateway. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the Lord said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. Ezekiel 43. Does it surprise you that Israel will be converted to Christ in the future and will again have a temple in Jerusalem filled with the glory of the Lord? It is easy to accept Bible prophecies that have already been fulfilled and ignore those that are still in the future. But these future prophecies will be fulfilled just as surely as the earlier ones. From that, uh, Ezekiel 48:35. from that day, the name of the city will be the Lord is there or Yehovah Shammah. Okay, good stuff. I had my friend email me this week and he said, I'm, I'm struggling. I know there's no contradictions in the Bible, but uh, Hebrews 10, I believe, is what he cited, where it says that uh, the sacrifices and offerings have ceased in Christ. They're done. We don't need them anymore. And uh, then he says, but it says that this future temple that's in Ezekiel 40 through 43 is talking about sacrifices. He says, how do you reconcile that? So what's the answer? Jesus is there. That's exactly right. He got it. It's Well, but why would there be sacrifices? True. Why would there be sacrifices? Because they're done in Christ. And the answer is exactly what he just said. They are a memorial. You had the sacrifices in the temple never did anything. Right. Nobody was saved by the sacrifices in the temple. They were only anticipatory of Christ. And so the fact is that the sacrifices that are coming in the millennial reign will not do anything. Those were anticipatory. These are memorial. That's the only difference. They're going to be sacrifices because they're, they are a memorial or remembrance of what Christ has done. Okay, And that's assuming that Ezekiel is actually speaking of a millennial temple. Okay, A lot of people will debate that and there are other views on that. But if you believe that there will be a millennial <coughs> temple, then that would be the answer is that they are memorial. And, 
Yeah, big temple, a lot of property for the Levites and the people that are attending to it. And actually, uh, it wouldn't be possible to fit that into the size of Israel today, the dimensions that are given in the Bible. Um, the reason why is because Israel's very narrow at certain points and somebody mapped it out and there would be parts of it out in the sea. But it could be that when the uh, earthquake happens that moves the Mount of Olives, splits it in two and all that, that the land itself could be restructured and it could actually fit there. Or it could be that it's just a square and part of it goes out into the ocean and it doesn't really matter anyway. But um, this is all stuff that's coming. It doesn't really matter. We can speculate on it all day long. But the answer for somebody, if they ask that, why would there be sacrifices in a millennial temple? They didn't do anything before. They're not going to do anything now. They anticipated Christ. They look up back on Christ's work. And that's all you need to, you don't need to go any further because we know that in Christ, all sacrifices, all atonement, everything is complete. Everything. Aren't the We're, oceans gone? The what? The oceans are gone at some point. Well, it says there'll be no more sea, but uh, that is in Revelation. That's not in the millennium. Okay. In the millennium, there will be. Um, as a matter of fact, it specifically says that the water will leave the temple, go down mm -hmm. uh, into the valley, and it'll eventually end up in the salt sea, and it'll say there will be um, uh, fish the same as can be found in the Great Sea, meaning the, uh, the uh, Mediterranean. So it means that there will be seas. In Revelation, it says there'll be no more sea. But what does that mean? Because in the Bible, quite often, a sea signifies either chaos, it, uh, you know, uh, uh, turmoil, mm -hmm. but especially a sea among the nations. In other words, the chaos of the nations. Mm -hmm. And so there will be no more sea. That's one interpretation of that. So it's all, it's all coming. It will all pan out when it comes. And in the meantime, we've got uh, an absolutely sure word. We don't need to worry if there are contradictions there or not. Um, uh, but uh, the, you know, one of the interesting things about the Millennial Temple is we've got a temple that always went down. Um, the, the Jordan descended, and it went down into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is dead. And it still does that to this day. There's no life at all in that area. But it says during the Millennial Reign, there will be the... Jordan going down, but also from under the temple, water will come up and it will flow down into the valley and there will be fish there, okay, which means there will be life and there'll be trees and all that kind of stuff, okay? But it says that the, the, the south end of the Dead Sea will remain salt. It will be dead. It will be marshes, okay? And so we're being given a picture there because in the final state of things, it says, doesn't say anything about the south end being salt. So what we have is a picture of the world. We have a world where life runs down into the Dead Sea and there is complete death. And then during the millennium, there will be life going down into life, but there will still be death on earth. And then in the final state of things, there will be no death at all. It'll be pure water at the beginning, pure water at the end. Everything will be pure. And so we're being given pictures of what is coming during the different dispensations. Hence, I'm a dispensationalist because that's what the Bible teaches. Right. A lot of people like to argue about uh, things and uh, <clears throat> niggle over minutia, and I'm sorry, you can do that all day long, but you're wrong. The Bible teaches dispensations. If you take, I had somebody arguing, you know, I did that prophecy update two or three weeks ago on the, uh, uh, the timing of the rapture, and he came back and he said, you're a deceiver, you're deceiving people because, and uh, the reason why is because I said that Jesus is speaking to Israel under the law, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I said, so none of that pertains to, if, you're, if you introduce that in your rapture theology, you're gonna be one, 
mixing dispensations and have improper theology in two, you're going to be wrong. Okay? And he came back and he says, well, the Sermon on the Mount is for everybody. Blah, blah, blah. And he's saying, you're a deceiver. And, and uh, uh, there you go. You get people that cannot understand that Jesus was speaking to Israel under the law. Exactly what I said. He's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to Israel under the law. And you can tell them that 4,000 times and they'll keep coming back with these stupid little arguments about why they're right when they're entirely wrong. Because people cannot change their presuppositions once they are set in stone. Just like Jehovah's Witnesses, just like Mormons, once you believe that you're right on something, it's very hard to step back and say, you know, I could be wrong on this. That guy is wrong. So, so Jesus was lying to the woman who said, you know, come and save my daughter, and like he ignored her. Yeah, I, yeah, I've been sent to the house of Israel. Right, right. that's right. Like, so it's like, okay, so don't trust him. Yeah, don't he, trust him. Don't trust his words. Absolutely, you know. <laughs> but he he gave her a mark of grace when she demonstrated faith, and sure. the same thing with the centurion and all that. But his mission was to Israel mm-hmm. under As the law, said. in As fulfillment of the law. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then once that was over, then things change. We're in a new dispensation. So we have to keep those things in proper order. Anyway, we got to pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, just uh, lift you up. And Felix, I knew I'd remember his name. Felix, we're very thankful that he and Rebecca had their baby and uh, that uh, it's healthy. There was a lot of difficulties during that pregnancy. And so we're very grateful that you uh, saw it uh, through to the end and that that beautiful, beautiful baby was born. Lord, we lift up anybody that's sick or having a difficult time, whether it's with finances or work or with, you know, spouse or whatever. We would just lift up the people that are are attending now or that will listen in the future and uh, search out their hearts and just find out what's missing or wrong and, and fill them up with a correcting hand so that they can turn around and just praise you endlessly for the goodness you display. And Lord, it doesn't matter even if things are all bad in our lives things are really good because of Jesus. We have a better hope than this fallen world and the struggles we're going through now. So thank you for the hope that we possess. Thank you. It is a sure hope. It is a wonderful hope. We're so grateful to you. And Lord, please bless this class. And if there's anything that's incorrectly analyzed, please alert us to it so that we will have proper doctrine. We thank you. We praise you. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, I uh, I, uh, just, it's very hard to uh, deal with some people when they already have their presuppositions and as I said you know Paul reveals a mystery Paul gives the details of it he gives us the timing of it he gives all of it you don't need to go into any other uh, you know different directions to find out what the rapture is and when it will happen and how it will happen right. it's very clear but, but, so. but even if it is the mid or post. It's not, so does why it argue cha- it? I understand that, yeah. but it's like, does that change what Jesus did and how he Oh, absolutely saved? not. It's like, stop. Absolutely not. It's like, why are we even having this discussion? Yeah, well, it's because people just, they hear the Sermon on the Mount and they say, well, that applies to me. Now, obviously the precepts do, because Paul repeats almost Everything. beautifully the Sermon on the Mount in Romans 14, 15, 16, in that area. I don't remember exactly where, I'm not going to go back there now, but he takes a lot of those precepts and he applies them now. But that is because Paul did that. He was speaking to Israel under the law. I mean, you could say that 4,000 times. That is who he was addressing. He wasn't addressing us. And as I said, there are some things, somebody emailed me a day ago about, you know, if you had faith as much as a mustard seed, hence I wore this today, um, uh, then you can move mountains. And, you know, he had a real 
question about that. He says, I know that's Jesus speaking to Israel under the law, but he's saying it. It's got to be true to us. I said, yeah, it does. It, it goes over dispensations because it's a truth that exists. It's not just something like, okay, I'm going to speak to my disciples and I'm not speaking to anybody else about this. He's speaking a truth that exists. If you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you will be able to say to this mountain, be removed and it will be removed. Okay. So, uh, and I'm not going to deny that that would apply to everybody. Okay. Well, what is the, what is the answer to that? Where was he coming from, and where? That's specifically in Mark. It's not uh, he would, it sent me the uh, the thing in Mark, but but where was he coming from? What was he doing when he said that? And I I, I don't want to spend all day looking for it right now because uh, we we've got a class to go through. But let me see if I can find it very quickly. It was Mark, I think, ten is where he uh, sent me this. And um, uh, or authority, your faith has made you well. Um, anyway, with God, all things are possible. Anyway, I, it's it's right here it, in Mark. It could be Mark 11. If you have anything, my house should be a, uh, for prayer. Okay, um, the temple and uh, uh, have faith in God. Assuredly, I say you, here it is. It's Mark 11. Surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he said will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Okay, so there's a couple things to consider. We'll say that that's a universal statement. It applies to everybody. If you believe, if you have faith in this, that it <coughs> should happen. We just came from the temple and it said there, this is preceding it. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter remembering said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. And that's when he said, you know, have faith in God and if you believe these things. So what is he doing? He's showing us that a very, very small amount of faith can actually do this. That fig tree really died, okay? And so what does that tell you about you and me when we ask something and it doesn't happen? It's not our will, it's his. Well, we're talking about faith, not will. <coughs> Everything, that's the first part of the equation. Everything has to be within the will of God. If Jesus did something, he is God, so it, this is a hypothetical, not an actual, but if Jesus did something that wasn't in the will of God, it wouldn't have happened, okay? But that's, like I said, that's a hypothetical. But, so it has to be in the will of God, but if it is in the will of God and it doesn't happen, what does that say? It's not the time. No, he just said it right here. If you have faith, faith. it means that obviously you don't have enough faith to do it. Now, what does it say? This is where I took him to answer his question, and he got it right away. Hebrews chapter 11 says what? It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith we understand. Okay? we grasp that God was able to speak the universe into existence because he possesses all the faith in the universe, okay? He was able to do this. Before he had done it, had he done it? No. no. Before he created, there was no creation. God knew that it would happen because he has all the faith in the universe. The point is that we don't have faith to do the things that we wanna do. If I say to a mountain, go ahead and be moved, and it doesn't do it, the problem was in me. Jesus said it, and it is true. I'm not God. I don't have sufficient faith 
to move that mountain. Deep inside of me, I know that that mountain is not going to move. It's not realistic. It's The faith is lacking in Charlie Garrett. The point that Jesus was making is, look at how great God is, that he can do these things that you can't do. That's the point he was doing, because he just got done cursing the fig tree, and the fig tree died. And he said, listen, if you have faith, anything is possible. It shows you the tremendous nature of the grace of God to save us by faith because a little bit of faith will do. That's all it takes and that's all we have. We don't have the faith to create the universe. We don't have the ability but it says that faith is what makes those things happen. Okay. So when you read that it doesn't mean that God is picking on you and saying look at how great I am and how puny you are. It's saying look at the magnificence of God accepting you despite your lack of faith. You show just enough faith to demonstrate that you believe that Christ came out of the grave and I'm going to offer you eternal life if you do. And you do, and he does. Okay? I absolutely believe what he said is true. If I had the faith to move a mountain, it would move. But there's something inside me that says this isn't going to happen. And it doesn't happen. Because God knows the limitations of who we are as people. So that's just how I look at it. If he says something like that, and he's saying it to the people... It's not anything in specific. It's not a dispensational matter because the apostles did not heal certain people, did they? They didn't heal Timothy. Why? <clears throat> One probably wasn't in God's will, first thing, as you said, but the second is they didn't have faith to do it. Paul could not heal Epaphroditus. He almost died for the sake of the gospel. But God had mercy on me. The greatness of God is that he can do anything even when we can't do it. So that's what I would answer to you. It's a very difficult thing for us to think, well, you know, I've been asking God for this issue or that issue or this issue for all this time and it hasn't happened. Well, guess what? One, it's probably not in God's will for it to happen. And we have to take that into consideration based on what James says. But at the same time, even if God says, I would allow that, but you just don't have the faith for it to come about. It comes back to us and our inability to to properly be able to handle what God would give us. Can you imagine if people could actually do those things and they had the faith? To, the, oh, I, I can't even imagine it, but that's just how I see that. I mean, I'm, I haven't done a study on this other than to just sit down and think that through for a couple minutes and to give them a response. But by faith, God, you know, we know that God created the universe. We have faith that God did that and he, in fact, did it. Like I said, there was no creation. God said, let there be light, let there be these things, and they were there. He can do what we don't have faith to do. Okay, anyway, we got to go on. We're in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Yep, and I'm going to start at the beginning of 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. <laughs> For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who who circum okay, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. For th though I myself have reason for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
I have more. Circumcision, oh, that's it. I have more. Period. I have more, yeah. Now, I'm glad that we started with this and we didn't end with this verse last week because he's going to go in and he's going to tell why he has the confidence in the flesh and it's all one thought. So mm -hmm. it's a good thing that we're starting with this. I'll read, this one is very similar. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Okay, whoops, I got to go back. I didn't read the whole verse. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then he's going to tell that what that is after this verse. But here we go. Um, I'm going to stop a little early today, just about 10 minutes. Um, I, somebody called me and I have something that I have to pick up. And so I'm going to pick that up while I'm getting dinner on the way home. So um, the Greek here in this verse literally reads, even though myself having confidence. The English translation gives the correct sense based on his later words, but at the moment he is placing himself on the same level with the Jews and comparing himself against them, okay? In essence, you Jews have confidence in the flesh, well, so do I, because he's a Jew. And not only does he have confidence in the flesh, he's gonna tell us what that confidence is. He's gonna go through it, and 99% of the Jews could not have the confidence that Paul had, okay, based on those human standards, all right? And then he's gonna come and he's gonna tell us what that actually means when he, after he tells the confidence, he's gonna tell what that actually means to him now, okay? And you know, it's like somebody that, uh, we, before I even get into Paul's commentary, we could have somebody that was, we'll just say Schwarzenegger. He was young and he was the Austrian oak and big and strong and you know, I got confidence in the flesh. And then he comes to Christ. Now, I don't know if he has and I doubt if he has, but I'm just using him as an example. He comes to Christ. Would be being the Austrian oak matter at all to him anymore? Absolutely not. I, it's like, that is my old life. That's who I used to be. Okay, if Einstein came to Christ, all of the brains in the world would not mean anything to him because the brains didn't get him to God, faith in Christ did, okay? Doesn't matter what it is that you have confidence in, Paul is just going to show from a Jewish perspective what his confidence was and what it means afterward. That's the point I'm making. So you can think about that. Pick, pick the person that you would think is the cream of human uh, existence and then compare what you would think about him before Christ and after Christ, and you will come up with the same conclusion every time. What he had is nothing, because Jesus Christ and faith in him is everything, okay? That's the point I'm making. So think about it, think of anybody while we're going through this. If he, Paul, were to boast like others, it would be of his human nature of what he will give a detailed description in the coming verses. And so to bolster his certain ability to boast, he continues with, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He's setting up the mutilation, the people, the, the, circum, the concision of the previous verses, he's setting them up, okay? Meaning those Jews who circumcise the flesh, but not the heart for a fall, okay? These are Jews, oh, I'm circumcised in the flesh. Look at how great I am, okay? and he's gonna show what that actually means. So that's, he's, he's making a logical case the way that he does in several of his epistles. He builds up a case and then he presents the evidence why this is the ultimate result. Good or bad, here's how he does it, okay? So, he would not begin an argument unless he was certain 
that he could prevail in it. This is Paul. He's not going to do this, and plus the Holy Spirit is influencing him. It is something that he's writing, and so what he writes is going to have a logical and proper conclusion. Okay, Paul's more so. I more so. I have, you may have uh, boasting in the flesh, but I more so. His more so will be an astonishing resume of lineage and learning, which will place him at the very, very top of the Hebrew society. Yay for Paul! But this is what life is about. Is that it? Instead, he will eventually come around to showing just what those things mean in comparison to having Jesus Christ. Okay, before I met the Lord, you know, and people always ask me, when you meet, when did you meet the Lord? And I really, really came to the Lord when I was 36. I may have been saved when I was 14, okay, at a church downtown. Somebody took me there and, and you know, probably, but after that there was no discipleship and there was no fellowship with Christ for many, many years. And then at 36, I suddenly woke up and I realized the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay, so I can tell you that all of the things that I have done, and I'm sure each person here that came to Christ at some point in their life and didn't just grow up with him, and even people that grew up with him came to him at a certain point in their life. They just may have been so young, they don't really remember it. But um, every great thing that I thought that I had done before that means diddly to me. It doesn't mean anything at all to me. I could go back and all the promotions and the honors and the accolades in the Air Force, and I could go back in high school with the cute curl hair I used to have. I'd go out surfing and I'd look great and tan, and it didn't mean anything. If you think about it, it doesn't mean anything. Eventually, if you don't have Jesus, all of that is just going to go back into the grave and it's going to be corrupted. And all the things that you had are just going to be either given away or thrown away or whatever. It doesn't mean anything. If you think about it, there is nothing of value that you are without Jesus Christ. Nothing. You look at the world and all these people that are following after Hollywood stars and, you know, uh, rich people and doesn't mean anything. It has zero value when you put it in the proper perspective. Life application. What thing in your life do you think you have a right to boast in? Do you have a nice house? Do you have a lot of money? Are you handsome or beautiful? Do you have a remarkable genealogy that includes kings and zillionaires? What is it that you feel is the most valuable part of who you are? If you say anything other then Jesus Christ, you have your priorities completely out of whack. Completely. He is the only thing that makes us of any value at all. And apart from him, we have no value. I'm sorry, if you think that you do, apart from Christ, you are wrong. And that's spelled R-O-N-G, wrong, okay? There is no value in human existence without Jesus Christ. There's beauty, there's temporary enjoyment of that beauty, whatever. But in the end, you are going to go into the grave and you are going to perish and everything that you are and everything that you attained will all be gone. Read the book of Ecclesiastes from that perspective and you'll understand what he is talking about. Because it sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about. One page he says one thing and it seems to say the opposite on the next page. It's like, what is this guy talking about? But when you take the idea of what Solomon is saying, life under the heavens, life under the sun, Life under the heavens, life under the sun. And he's making a contrast. This is of value. This is of no value. And if you have this, then this can have its proper perspective. 
go and have fun, eat and enjoy your life because you are under the heavens. But if you're only under the sun, then all that you're doing here has no value at all. It's purposeless. So read Ecclesiastes from that perspective and you will understand the book. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. It's a book that you just have. I don't know what this guy's talking about. But if you understand that you are accountable to God and when you come to him and you have the proper relationship with him, everything you're doing now has meaning. It has value and has purpose. But if you don't have the right relationship with him, you have the exact same thing and another person next to you doing the exact same thing, what he is doing has no value and what you are doing has its own value until the time when you come to be with God. That's it, okay? Um, three, five. Three, five. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Okay, almost identical and says concerning instead of in regard to. So, um, Paul now begins his list of things that could give him confidence in the flesh. First on his list is that he was circumcised the eighth day. Okay, if he wasn't, then he would have been cut off from his people. Okay, it is the badge of the Jew and the right goes all the way back to where? Where is that located in the Bible? The first note of circumcision. Genesis, Genesis, yes, but what chapter? 17. Yay, he's got it. I was just seeing if you guys remember that Genesis, you ought to remember that. It's a very important chapter, okay? Genesis 17 comes before or after Genesis 15. Anybody? Okay, that's correct. It comes after Genesis 15. It's important to remember when things happen because Genesis 15 tells us what? That Abraham was credited Righteousness. He believed, and God credited it to him for righteousness. That happened in Genesis 15, verse 6, right? And then in Genesis 17, he's given the sign of circumcision. After, not before. Paul makes his case based on that in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans, okay? But Genesis 17, starting in verse 10, I'll start in verse 9, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant. Okay, the circumcision is not the covenant itself and people need to get that right. I talked about that during the... uh, have we published that one yet? I don't know. Anyway, uh, I typed it within the past two weeks for the Acts commentary. It may have already been out. It may be coming out because I can never remember. There's 11 days of commentaries that are from the time I do them until I publish them. But anyway, you need to remember that the circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Okay, so it says, uh, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you, which Paul just said, circumcised the eighth day. He who is circumcised among you, or every male child in your generations, he who was born in your house, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house, and he who is bought with your money, must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Okay, so we have that. The Lord said that to Abraham, it was to be the law, and 
And, uh, it goes in and it says, if you're not circumcised, then that person shall be cut off from his people and so on. Okay, so what happened to the people in the wilderness wanderings? They were not circumcised. <laughs> Everybody born during the wilderness wanderings were not circumcised. And they came to the Jordan River. They went through the Jordan River uncircumcised. And then when they were in the land of promise, they were circumcised. They had so many circumcisions that they had a hill of circumcised foreskins. They called it Ha-Ra-Lot. Uh, 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 I, I haven't read that in years, so I'm trying to remember, but uh, it's the hill of foreskins, okay? And so, were they cut off from their people? Well, yes and no. They were not a part of the covenant because they were not properly handled, but they came into the covenant. And remember what's been happening in the book of Numbers. It's kind of a deviation, but it all pertains to the same thing. From the time that they failed to enter Canaan in uh, Exodus chapter 14, all the way until the time that they go in through the Jordan into uh, Israel. I'm sorry, yeah, the land of Israel in Joshua. I think it's Joshua 4, which we'll get to that pretty soon. All of that time is picturing what? I've said it in at least 400 sermons. Now, um, all of that time is picturing their rejection of Christ until the time that what we just read about in the uh, daily, oh, this commentary, the until they coming. realize that Christ is Lord. That is picturing them in a state of uncircumcision. That's what it's picturing. And yet they're all Jews and they're all circumcised, aren't they? So it's actually picturing their uncircumcised heart. Okay, he used real life people as an example of what's going on in Israel right now. Because when they failed to go into Canaan in Genesis 14, turned them away and he says, you're gonna go into the wilderness and every person of that generation will die. But during that time, something happened. People were being bit by snakes and God did what? He told them to make a serpent, put it on a pole, and anyone who looks to it will be saved. And what did Jesus refer to in John chapter 3? That, yeah, when I am lifted up, I, uh, that serpent pictured me. It pictured my cross. So any Jew right now, from the time that they were rejected by God in AD 70, until they receive Jesus Christ as a nation, meaning they enter through Christ, the, pictured by the Jordan, all of that time, these 2,000 years, any Jew that looks to the cross will be saved. That's the picture that we've been given for the past three years or three and a half, four years now. Numbers all the way through until the, we're almost at the end of Deuteronomy right now. All of that is pictured their time of being out of God's favor and the law being given to them. So it's all tied in together. But uh, I typed the very first Joshua sermon on Monday. I got done with the, I did a short series that goes between Deuteronomy and Joshua. It'll only be four sermons. And then after that, we're gonna go into Joshua. I was so miserable on Monday because of this and the infection and not having slept for a day and a half, almost two days, or I guess two full nights. I was so miserable. I don't know how that sermon is gonna come out. I, I finished it and I just said, I'll, I'll look at it in about eight weeks. But hopefully it's good and then we'll go from there. And when we get to them crossing through the Jordan, I guarantee you that's going to be amazing information. I guarantee it. I, I you know, I haven't uh, done the sermon, obviously, so we'll have that in a few weeks, but I just assure you it's going to be marvelous because all of this has been leading up to that point for Israel. They rejected Christ. 
they didn't go into Cain. And remember, I, I'll give you the, the, the memory of it so you, you'll remember when I say this. They went into, the spies went into Canaan. There were 12 spies. Two of them stuck with the Lord, picturing Joshua and Caleb, picturing Jew and Gentile. Caleb is, means dog. It's a picture of Gentiles. Joshua is a picture of the saved believers in Christ, okay, of the Jews. They went into the land of Canaan, and when they came back, they got something before they came to Moses in the valley of Eshcol. They got what? Grapes. Um, grapes. grapes. They put it on a stick between, and we went through that sermon. You'll have to go back and watch it. All of that pictured Christ, okay? The Eshcol, which is the valley, comes from Eshek, which means, does anybody remember that? Do you remember that? It means testicle. It's the place where life issues from, okay? And so all of that is picturing life in Christ, and they rejected that. Okay, they came out, they rebelled against the Lord, and that's when they went into punishment. It's all picturing Israel for the past 2,000 years. You gotta go back and watch all those sermons again, apparently. Start with Genesis, or Numbers, just start with Genesis 1 and go through Deuteronomy. You'll be done in about a year and a half if you do one a day, and you'll see the entire picture of what's going on. Marvelous stuff. Anyway, that is what's being pictured. This is what Paul is referring to. He's taking us back to Genesis 17, but all of this is tied into what I just brought in about Israel. I am a Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. All of these great things, and then he's going to tell us what it means to him now. But the point is, every Jew in the world today that is not in Christ has met these qualifications, if he was born a Jew. Now, some people have become Jews, but we're talking about the standard. You are circumcised the eighth day, okay? You are of Israel. You're blah, 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 all these things, okay? And yet it doesn't mean anything. That's what Paul is giving us. Okay, so we'll go on. It says, um, uh, we read Genesis 17, 10 through 13. This is the sign of the covenant. A sign, the word in Hebrew is ot. In Greek, it is semeon. They both have the same meaning. When you see the word sign, it means something that points to something else. It's not the thing itself. You'll see signs and wonders and miracles, okay? Those are all different things. Wonders are a thing that is itself. God goes up and, or Jesus goes up and he does something which is a wonder. It's amazing. And people say, look at that. He has power, okay? But it doesn't point to anything else. It is the thing itself. A sign will point to something else. And Jesus, uh, John, in the uh, book of John, says that this was the first sign. This is the second sign. He goes through there and he uses the word Simeon. It is pointing to something else. What is it pointing to? Christ is the Messiah because there were certain signs that he was fulfilling, okay? When you see circumcision is a sign in Genesis 17, it means it is pointing to something else. And as I said, I said this in the study, I think two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, a do will say, look, I'm circumcised, I am righteous. They say the, the circumcision is the thing itself. And that's not what it is. You can be circumcised and be completely unrighteous. They've been an unrighteous group of people for 2,000 years. You don't point at the circumcision and say, look, I am righteous. You say, look, this is a sign of, and then you have to determine what the sign is. What is the sign of circumcision pointing to? The transmission of sin from the first father. Points to Christ who will cut the transmission of sin from Adam through humanity. Every single person here, if I'm looking at you all, you all have a father and a mother, okay? The sin has transmitted from father to child, doesn't matter if you're a male or a female, 
since the very first person, Adam. His sin continues to transfer to every single one of us. The sign, circumcision, is cutting that. And that's why the male is cut and not the female, is because it is a sign. It doesn't actually do anything. It's a sign that Christ will come and cut the sin nature in humanity. Christ is the fulfillment of the sign. All of these signs, manna is a sign. That's Exodus. Anybody, what, what uh, chapter of Exodus? We got the circumcision. Manna came in Exodus 16, okay? It's a sign, the sign of Christ, the bread of life, okay? It's just something that points to something else, okay? So we have the circumcision. This is the point that Paul is making. All of this that I'm saying isn't just, you know, going off on tangents. It is bearing on what Paul is saying right now. We read the sign of circumcision, Genesis 17, at the time of Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abraham what he said in Genesis 17. Being circumcised on the eighth day meant that he was not only in the covenant people, but that he was received into the covenant people, having been circumcised according to this ancient rite on his eighth day of life. No mere proselyte was he, but one with the lineage of Abraham himself. Okay, so he's just made a distinction. I am of Israel, or how did he say it? I am uh, circumcised the eighth day. That's what he starts out with. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. There are other people that are Jews around me right now that are of Israel that were not circumcised on the eighth day. They're proselytes. They came in later. So now I'm better, according to the standard I'm laying out, than all of the people that were not circumcised on the eighth day that call themselves a Jew. See the point he's making? Mm -hmm. There's lots of people that converted into Judaism. I am technically, according to the world, better than they are. They were brought into the covenant later. I was a part of the covenant from birth. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, If it was a Sabbath day and the child, was his eighth day was the Sabbath, which one would take priority? No. Really? Circumcision. Huh. Circumcision took priority over the Sabbath. Okay? As a matter of fact, Jesus even w w brought that. You circumcise on the eighth day, even though it's a Sabbath, blah, blah, blah. Okay? Yeah, you would be breaking the law. But the circumcision predates the law, and it takes priority over the Sabbath day. Okay, the Sabbath also predates um, the law as well. As I said, Exodus 16. So we have to make sure we got all these things straight. But if you had circumcision and the Sabbath coming up on the same day, circumcision took priority over the Sabbath and the law of the Sabbath. Okay, so that's another point. Paul is making a point about how important this was among the people, and he's better than anybody that didn't have that part of it. Okay, so... Next, he says that he is of the stock of Israel. This is an emphasis concerning what he just noted. Another person could have been born of another nation and circumcised on the eighth day, but he was of the true line of Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob, who is Israel. He bore in his blood the royalty of the patriarchs. Okay, now, 
I know people love to get down on the Edomites, and right now people are saying that the Russians are the Edomites, and every time somebody gets into a conflict, they say, well, they're a bunch of Edomites. It's just a, almost a pejorative. But the Edomites, the story of the Edomites is one that I've given it in several sermons. It's coming up in a sermon pretty soon, okay, in between uh, Deuteronomy and Joshua. The story of the Edomites as a people is that they were brothers. Edom was a brother of Israel, and they were, you know, living together in different countries for the most part, and they were sometimes at war with each other, sometimes they, you know, interacted with each other, but they were kind of at, we'll just say, in a state of, like, enmity. Tension. Yeah, tension is the best word. Thank you. They're in a state of tension with each other, okay? Eventually, and this is documented, recorded history. So we don't need to question whether this is true or not. It's recorded history that eventually the Edomites wanted to return to the land of their fathers. Okay, And so they were offered by uh, John Hyrcanus, I think it was in about 173 BC, somewhere around there. Um, uh, he said that if you will be circumcised, and if you will follow the customs of Moses, you will be of Israel. And so they agreed to that. The Edomites agreed to that, and they were brought into Israel, okay? They became a part of Israel. They met the requirements of Exodus chapter 12 that said anybody that is circumcised and that observes the Passover will be as a native among you. They did that. They were incorporated into the Jewish society, and as John Hyrcanus uh, recorded by Josephus says they became none other than Jews. So they are brought into the nation of Israel as a people. How do we know this? Is because one of the kings of Israel later was Edomite, Edomite the Edomian, who is Herod the Great. Hmm. Okay, and so they were among the people. They were considered Jews. His grandson, great grandson, King Agrippa, talked to Paul. And they agreed that they believed in the prophets. He was saying, you're a Jew, you believe these things. And he was, at that time, King Agrippa would have been circumcised on the eighth day. But the lineage of Paul goes all the way back to Israel, whereas the lineage of Agrippa was mixed. It went partly Jew because his mother or whoever was, you know, uh, partly but partly Edomite. And so he could say, see, I'm better than you. He didn't do that when he faced Agrippa, but he could have said, listen, I go all the way back, see how great I am. He didn't do that because he understood that there was something greater that he was arguing for than his circumcision and his stock in Israel. Okay, so if you disagree with me on Edom, that is fine. Do whatever you want. Don't send me an email on it until you have done the study. The Edomites as a people went into Israel. They were accepted into Israel. They met the requirements of Exodus chapter 12. They were circumcised. They observed the Passover. They were assimilated into Israel. And that is a point. There's a point about Edom that is becomes completely relevant to the world in which we live because they did this. Because it says that um, uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And this is all coming up in a sermon. I've given it before and I'm, I'll, I'll give you the information again coming up. But if that is true, and if Edom is now a part of Israel. What happened to Israel in AD 70? It was destroyed, they were exiled. So that means that the Edomites 
that are part of Israel, who are Israel, are now in the world. And so when you say you're a bunch of Edomites, you're speaking to the Jews as well as anybody else because they incorporated that group of people into who they are. And yet, that same group of people is now where? Back in, Back in the land of Israel, okay? If you understand what I'm saying here is that God has, he is rich in mercy to all, okay? Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter if you're from Edom or Moab or whatever. So when it says that uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, you have to take it in its proper context and look at what is being said all the way back at the time of Rebekah when she went to see the Lord and what the Lord says to her about her two children. And if you get it wrong, you're going to get the entire history of Edom and Israel wrong because what he says is not what everybody thinks he says. Okay, I've talked about it during that sermon. I've talked about it two sermons since then, and we'll talk about it one more time, and then I may never mention it again. But pay attention to these things because these are really, really important theological issues that all have bearing on what Paul is saying right, right here. But okay, with the records gone of all the lineage, the record makes no difference. They're, they're well, never no, be that, able to and that's true. With, that, with, know, with the uh, record gone, uh, the only thing that matters is you know that these people are considered Jews because they are the people that are circumcised, they observe the Passover, they do these things that the law says if you do these things you'll be a Jew. But remember the picture. The picture is that they are not circumcised in the heart. Right. Okay, and because of that, they're not really true Jews anyway. But they are the Jewish people, the stock of Israel. And so we need to make sure that we don't just throw out the baby with the bathwater bath and say, see, they're not true Jews, and therefore God is not doing anything with them. They are. And if you look at the typology from Numbers all the way through to Joshua 4, I think, yeah, I think it's Joshua 4, you will see that even though they are not right with the Lord, their heritage demands that the Lord has protected them as a people and will reestablish them as a people when they are in proper covenant relationship with him. It's very important to get these issues right, but you're, you're right, there's no genealogies listed anymore. And that's another really good point about the Edomites. They were incorporated into Israel. All of that was documented and maintained at the temple. So Paul was a Jew all the way back to Israel, and he could prove that. He was from Benjamin. Benjamin was from Israel. Okay, he could prove that from the temple records. The Edomites could say, well, I am now a Jew, and that's recorded in the temple. Okay, but all of that, all of that was burned up. Not just Israel stuff, but all of it. It was all burned up in AD 70. There are no genealogical records of anybody. So when somebody is Israel today, they are Israel because they are observing what the Lord said to do in Exodus 12, blah, 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 but they are not right with the Lord. He will reestablish them, and he has maintained them as a people, despite all of that genealogical record. This is all, it's all relevant. It's all very important what's going on in the world. Charlie, and yes. What, what do you do with some of the uh, prophecies Oh, absolutely. Uh, here, here's one thing that people have to understand about Obadiah. Um, uh, uh, here's the answer to that, okay? When the Lord says he's going to swoop down on Philistia, when he says that he's going to destroy Edom, let me ask you all a question. Does Philistia still exist today? Does Edom still exist today? The Lord is working with the original places that he designated all the way back at the beginning. 
Okay, there is no Syria, and yet he says that I will make a highway from Assyria all the way down to Egypt, and these people will be my people, Israel will be my inheritance, etc. right? He's using names that, of people that don't even exist anymore. When he speaks about Persia joining in Gog Magog, is Persia coming against Gog Magog? Well, the Iranians who are in Persia will. And so when you see a name of people it doesn't mean that that people group exists. He's talking about the people that are in that land. So when you see Edom, I'm going to swoop down on Philistia, he's talking about the people in Gaza today, the Palestinians. And when he says, I'm going to destroy Edom, he's not speaking about destroying the Edomites. He's talking about destroying the people that are in the land of Edom or the people that are in the land of Moab. Because Edom and Moab are both in where now? Jordan. They're both in the land of Jordan. And so when he says, I'm going to destroy Edom, he's going in to destroy the people that are in Jordan. Okay, we have to make sure that we make that distinction. When he says, Gog is coming against you, there's no Gog in the world. It's the people that are in the land of Gog. And that's why the table of nations of Genesis chapter 10 is so important. It says that these people dispersed here, these people dispersed there. And even though those people groups may not exist, the place where they settle does, and there are people that live in that land. And so we have to be sure that when we understand uh, that he, or when we see that he is speaking of a certain location, and that location doesn't even exist anymore, it does to God because he established those boundaries. He established the place where those people are. So there really is no Edom anymore, but the land of Edom is there, and it is filled with people right now. And so when we say Edom, we're speaking about that place. We're not speaking about this group of people that came into Israel and became Israel and is now among the world. It's very important to make that distinction. Go through, read the Bible from that perspective when he speaks about eight. And that's why it doesn't matter if you think America is in the Bible or not. It doesn't matter what you think this much. America is not in the Bible because that land was never designated as a territory to be dealt with in the Bible, okay? Now, it may be that we're a part of a group of people coming against this group or we're supporting Israel. That may be the case, okay? Because the world is a big group of nations right now. But the land of America did not exist as far as the Bible is concerned, okay? Some people could say that Tarshish is Britain. Some people will say Tarshish is Spain. Some people say Tarshish is uh, you know, somewhere on the Mediterranean Ocean, whatever, okay? Tarshish exists. It's a nation that existed that God is using. He knows where it is. He knows where Tarshish is, and the people that are in the, wherever Tarshish is, the people that are there now are the people that he is referring to when he speaks of the future prophecies in Daniel, etc. That's what we need to remember is just because he mentions a group of people, it doesn't mean that they're the same group of people. It means they're in the location where that group of people is. Everybody got that? Okay, that, that is my answer to that. Now, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But when I read the Bible, I always read it from that perspective because there is no Edom today. There is no Moab today. There is no Ammon today. There is no uh, Philistia today. There is no Persia today. And yet people exist in those places. And so look at it from that perspective. I would say that that is a correct analysis, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. All right. But I, everybody 
when there, I said it a minute ago and I'll repeat it just so you know what I'm talking about. Whenever there is a major conflict on the world, the first thing that gets shoved out is those are the Edomites. I, I, I've read that so many times in the past two weeks about Russia that I, I can't tell you how many people have sent me emails. Well, there are the Edomites. And then as soon as Russia fades out and Ethiopia becomes a big thing on the scene, everybody's going to be saying, there are the Edomites. It's just, it's, it's something that people like to do. They like to sound like they know what they're talking about. It, it, that is not correct, okay? The Russians are not the Edomites, okay? They're not. So uh, if you sent me one of those emails, I'm sorry, I know I didn't answer you on it. It's because I just disagree with it. I disagree with the premise that they are the Edomites. They're not, okay? The Edomites are the people wherever Edom was, and it's very clearly defined in scripture, the people that are there right now, and they would be the people of Jordan. That is who will be in Obadiah taken out, okay? It's the location that God designated, and he specifically says that. He, where was it? It was in the, uh, uh, we just did it. Uh, the, the Lord sets the borders of the nations. I think it was in the Song of Moses or the chapter before. He specifically said that he sets the borders of the nations. And that is what is important, is the land that, and that's why Israel, doesn't matter what's going on there, the land of Israel is the border of the nation that he has designated. The difference between that and anywhere else is that when Israel, the people, is not in Israel the land, the land is unproductive, right? And then as soon as they're back in, what happens? Boom, exactly. Flowers and flourishing and water suddenly discovered and beauty and because the people of Israel are tied to the land of Israel. And that's not true with other parts of the world, okay? Israel is unique among the nations because God has set them and their land apart. That's, how, that's one way that we can know that Israel belongs in that land, and that land belongs to Israel. As a matter of fact, today, I will give away my life application for today, because it's still dealing with what Paul is saying. Um, uh, I, I was typing, and uh, we were talking of Acts, I think it was Acts uh, 7.30, I think it was Acts 7.37. I may be wrong, give me a second and I'll read it to you, and then you'll understand why I'm saying that. Acts 7, might be 36, let's see, where are we? Um, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Okay, yep, that's the verse. Wonders and signs. And my life application was basically, because people ask it all the time, why, why doesn't God do wonders and signs today? Well, unless you're a charismatic, then he does them every Sunday. But um, besides that, he doesn't do these things anymore. Why not? And my answer is that he has. We have the greatest wonder of all right in the world today, and we ignore it. Israel, they're there. God said that he was going to save them as a people. He said that he was going to plant them back into the land, and the whole world, the whole world, having the greatest sign or wonder that you could imagine, doesn't believe it. They ignore it. They say it's not theirs. It's, they, they find any, even the church itself. Oh, no, that's not them. We've replaced them. One of the greatest things that God has done in all of human history and we ignore it. We don't need signs and wonders. We've got them right there. You want the biggest sign and wonder here, right there. And yet we ignore it. I'm not talking about you and me. I'm talking about the people of the world in general. It doesn't matter if God does signs and wonders. Jesus came and he did the greatest signs and wonders that the people of Israel had ever seen. And what did they do to him? 
They crucified him. Signs and wonders don't make any difference in the human heart. They make zero difference. What matters is that we have faith that what God is doing is exactly what he said he would do. That is a real sign and a wonder. When people believe the Bible, <laughs> that's, that's an amazing thing because we just don't have that in us. It, Dr. McGee said prophecy is confirmed by Israel. Prophecy is confirmed by Israel. That's right. Oh, my gosh. we got to get going. I'm, okay, here we go. Um, I've been talking, and uh, it all has to do with what sure. Paul is speaking about. Okay, so we'll go on. Eighth day was circumcised. He is born in his blood, the royalty of the patriarchs. Okay, thirdly. He says that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He has identified his status within the circumcision, then his status within the national lineage of Israel. Now, he further defines the national identity by showing what portion of that group he belongs to, which is the tribe of Benjamin. This was a high honor indeed. Israel's first king, Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Further, the tribe was almost annihilated due to a case of disobedience leading to war against them by the other tribes. They were reduced to how many men? 400, 600 actually. Okay, 200 didn't have wives, so it was, yeah, 600, and then 200 didn't have wives and they were allowed to go steal the wives. Did you say six? No, I did oh, not. Oh, okay. No. All right. I knew um, it was a small number. Yes, yeah, small number, 600 men. See Judges 20 if you want to read that story. Members of this tribe also sided with David during his pre-ruling years. They actually supported him, remember now, their king and their the first king Saul was from, from their tribe right. and yet they sided with David okay they actually supported him in opposition to the king who belonged to their own tribe in 1 Chronicles 12 these along with other noted accounts could be considered a point of boasting fourth he says that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews the term Hebrew was first used of Abraham in what chapter anybody well, I just it's good to know these things. If I ask, then you'll remember in the future. 14. Chapter what? 14. Yay, he got it. Chapter 14, verse 13. It signifies one who has crossed over. The name is derived from Abraham's ancestor, Eber, who was probably the eldest generation of those who crossed over the river in a move away from the area of Babel. From there, a spiritual connection was made to the physical move. The, they eventually crossed over from idolatry to worshiping the true God. Thus, they were set apart from the other nations. The term Hebrew is used in the Bible to show a distinction between the people groups. There are the Hebrew people, and this is contrasted to all foreigners. Even though Paul was born in Sarsus in Cilicia, he had, like his father, retained this identity. They remained apart from those around them in culture and in national identity. Finally, in this verse, he notes concerning the law, here it is, a Pharisee. Not only was he a Jew who lived under the law of Moses, he was the epitome of those who held to the law. The Pharisees were known to be the strictest adherents, <coughs> excuse me, the strictest adherents to the faith, and they meticulously lived out every precept as perfectly as they could. They went through intense studies of the law even from youth, and they had built up a system of life that necessitated their absolute adherence to every fine point of the law 
and even beyond. They were very legalistic, going even beyond the law. Theirs was the leading group of holy men to whom everyone else looked to for their certain they're certainly noble lives. In other words, I'm looking to the Pharisees. I'm like them. I'm endeavoring to be as good as they are. And, and Jesus even used them in the parables. You know, the Pharisee standing there and how good he is and the tax collector down there beating his breast and says, I'm not even worthy to you know, look up. And so, but the Pharisees were the ones that everybody wanted to be like. They wanted to attain. That would be the group to aspire to. In Acts 23, verse 6, he notes that he was not only a Pharisee, but he was the son of a Pharisee. He was of this tradition, and it went back even before himself. This is Paul. He's this man that has all of these great accolades that meant all of the world to him, and all of a sudden they meant absolutely nothing to him. Life application. I'm going to stop after this. Do we have enough time to do one? We better not. Um, yeah, we'll do one more. That's all right. I'll just pick it up on the way home. And life application. Paul could surely boast in these things if they were worth boasting in. He possessed the highest connections to the social and religious life of the people from whom Christ came. Surely, if anyone could merit God's favor apart from the work of Jesus, it would be this guy. But to Paul, only Christ mattered. What is your boast? In what are you placing your hopes? And there'll be all these surprises of people that have walked around in these pious robes and little pointy hats all their life and said, see how religious and pious I am. And they're going to get chucked into the abyss because they failed to come to Christ. All of this religiosity means absolutely nothing without Jesus. 3, 6, and we'll, we'll get done. As for zeal. What? About boasting. Galatians 6.14. Yeah. It says, I won't boost in anything. Anything but yeah. the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ. Nothing. Absolute. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Okay, 6. As for zeal, persecuting the church. <laughs> as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Okay, this one's a little different concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Okay, it's close. Okay, Paul gives a completion to the list of his points of earthly boasting. Good, I'm glad we're doing this because we're going to finish his boasting and then we'll get into what it means to him now next week. His earthly boasting in this verse. It is not that he is actually boasting in them, but that if he were to boast, it would be in these things. He notes, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. There's an irony in this thought, as it says in Galatians chapter 1. Hang on, where are we? Philippians, go back to Galatians. Pages are so small that you can flip through eight times and keep missing it. Okay, Galatians chapter 1, and then it says in verse 2 and 3, um, 1, is that what I said? Oh, 23, 1, 23. Okay, he said, oh yeah, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. Right, Paul was definitely zealous towards those he was passionate about before coming to Christ. At that time, he lived as a Pharisee. In this position, he felt that the church was an aberrant sect and that he must do everything possible in order to stamp it out. In Romans chapter 10, he shows how Israel, which had not called on Jesus, was in exactly the same position. Romans 10, 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to to knowledge. Without understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ, there remained a zeal within the Jewish community for the law of Moses 
which established them as a people. It is natural for one to be zealous about such things. However, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Therefore, the zeal is misdirected. In this misdirected condition, he was zealous for persecuting the church. He notes this specifically numerous times in his other letters as well. And he says it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He also notes this in Galatians 1.13 and verse 123, which I just read you. And he hints at it in 1 Timothy 1.13. Even more, the book of Acts describes his efforts in dealing, con uh, I'm sorry, his efforts in detail concerning his persecution of the church. If he were still one who held to the law as necessary, he would be able to boast more than anyone about this matter. But he goes on. He next says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Absolutely, that was me. This was the righteousness of which Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 5. What is Matthew chapter 5? The Beatitudes. Remember I was telling you that guy was telling me I'm deceiving the people because I said Jesus is speaking to Israel under the law? Well, here's what it says in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, where am I? Uh, verse 23. Matthew uh, 5, 23. It says here, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. Okay, that's Matthew 5, 23. I don't know if that's the verse I wanted to read, but that's what I have said. Um, uh, Matthew 5, 43, you for, uh, maybe I want, anyway, um, maybe I want 423. No, let's see here. Maybe I want 623 because sometimes pages go over. The point I was going to be make was, um, and it obviously isn't 523 that I want. It's another verse, but um, he was talking about the law and he was saying, uh, speaking of the importance of observing the law. So regardless, my point about Matthew 5 is that if we are to, if Jesus is speaking to us, then why aren't we going down to, to the temple and sacrificing animals right now? Why aren't we observing the law, right? Okay, so we have to remember that. I'm sure it's not Matthew 5.23 that I wanted to tell you. But um, the scribes and Pharisees were meticulous in how they observed the law, carefully following every precept. Yeah, you know, it probably is. Your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has sent something against you. That may be what I was thinking of. Anyway, they held so fast to the law that they felt they had merited God's favor because of it, considering themselves blameless. However, this showed that they didn't really understand the law as well as they may have. Within the law was the mandatory day of atonement, which they were required to observe. The fact that this was required should have shown them that they still needed mercy. As this is so, their righteousness was still lacking. Everybody understand the precept? They were required by law to abase themselves on the Day of Atonement. They had no choice in the matter, and that means that they were violators of the law, and they needed God's mercy, okay? This is why Jesus said that a person's righteousness needed to exceed that of the Pharisees and Sadducees. These were the people that were doing every single thing that the law demanded, everything. They were following it meticulously and they had added on tradition after tradition on top of that to make sure that they were as pious as they could be. 
And Jesus said that if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to have a righteousness more than these people. Paul was only righteous before the law insofar as he had held to every precept externally, but he needed an internal change to grant him true righteousness. That's uh, 517 through 20. 517 through 20. Let me see what you said there. Oh yeah, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law, till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these, this is exactly, I don't know why I put 523. Anyway, this is exactly what I, I was thinking of. Um, one jot or tittle will by no means pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's exactly right. Thank you for that. Um, uh, the point is, and what I was going to say about that guy that said, well, you know, Jesus was speaking to us. If that's true, then he is failing right now. Right. Okay, he is not meeting the demands of the law. Everything has a context, everything. And when you say that the rapture is based on something that Jesus said, I'm sorry, you are not following the context of the Bible. Okay, it's, uh, as I said in the sermon last week, if you have one foot in the law and one foot in Christ, the law by default takes precedence by default, and you are condemning yourself, okay? So, um, life application. When someone does something truly harmful in the name of their religion, it is because they really believe that it is the right thing to do. What they need is to be shown the truth of Jesus Christ. This is why missionaries go even into Islamic nations. They're willing to put their own lives at risk in order to show these wayward souls that the path they believe is incorrect. When we can empathize with the viewpoint of others, we can then work to correct their faulty views of what God specs, expects of each of us. It's an important thing to remember, and so uh, we just have to uh, keep those things in mind. We have to keep things in their proper context and above all, we need to not rely on ourselves, our deeds of the flesh or anything else. We need to understand that the only thing that is good in us, the only thing is good, is the hope we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful word. Thank you for this treasure that we possess. And forgive us for overlooking it, for ignoring it, for putting it off to the side when we're tired or when we're hungry and not pursuing it as we should. Help us to get up daily and to read it and to go to bed and to read it before we do. Help us to think on it throughout the day and to consider what it says all the days of our lives until the day we stand before you and see the face of Jesus whom this book speaks of. Thank you, O oh God, for Jesus Christ our Lord, our only hope and our only righteousness. Thank you for him. And we pray, praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me back this thing up. Say goodbye to these folks online. Break.